He tells us the way of salvation. He tells us the, what the things he desires and requires of us. He knows those innermost parts and the secret spots of your heart. And as the woman testifies in her frangelistic opportunity there in Samaria, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. What a wonderful intro into evangelism. And how do we share our faith with people? How do we tell people about Jesus? Well, why not start with come and see the man? Let me tell you about the man. Let me tell you about Jesus, the one who has touched my heart, who knows everything I've ever done and knows everything that you've ever done. Now, that may have been a little bit of hyperbole of excitement. As Brian Regan, the comedian, says, the epitome of hyperbole or the epitome of hyperbole, you know, maybe she's exaggerating here. But in any case, anyone who points out the things that Jesus had laid his finger on in her heart must know everything else about her. And it's true. And you know what? Jesus knows everything about you. Jesus knows everything about your home, your personal life, your hobbies, your sin struggles, your habits, your addictions. He knows about the condemnation that the devil is speaking into your heart. He knows about your dreams and your desires. He knows about, you know, and, and you can kind of make this in any picture that you want, but he knows about the five men and the one that you shouldn't be living with. He knows about all of those things that shouldn't be. And yet Jesus speaks to the woman, not with condemnation, not with judgment, but he spoke to her with kindness. He spoke to her with respect. He spoke to her with consideration. He spoke to her with love. And the way that Jesus evangelized the woman moved her to trust in him for salvation and for freedom in such a way that the, she would then go from being evangelized by Jesus. Now she's going to go be the evangelist in her town. Jesus displayed so much love, such a sense of security to her. That she felt safe with him even when her sin was exposed. Any of the people that we speak to ought to feel the same way. Giving a safe place is the church's role. A safe place to confess sin, to repent, to put trust in Jesus. Now surely when the woman who had five husbands and the one that she's living with isn't currently her husband... Surely when she ran into the town and said, come and meet the man, many of the people might have thought, is this man number seven that we're talking about now? We don't see any of that here. Obviously, she is so, she's got that look on her face of like, there's something different. And they just came with her. They came with her, verse 30 says. They went out of the city and they came to him. How awesome. The woman's invitation was effective. The people came when she told them who Jesus was and how he had impacted her life. Some of you are here today because of that, because somebody told you of how Jesus changed their life and said, come and see the man. Come see the man who's changed my life. I want to tell you today, he will change your life too. 
If you'll drink of the water of Jesus, if you'll drink of Jesus today, you'll never thirst again. He will change your life. It was kind of funny. Uh, we went over to some friend's house last night, and they had like uh, three calves that needed doctored. And, uh, and so we just had this little on-foot rodeo that we did, and we just rope these calves on our feet and threw them down, and we're working on them. And uh, Johnny and I were holding the heel rope on this calf, and, and there was a guy, a new friend of ours that we met on the other end of the rope, and we're on the, on the next side, and we're holding this calf down with this rope, just talking about different things, and it turns out the iron fire went out, and the iron got cold, and so we had to wait forever for this iron to get hot, and as we're just holding there, talking to this new friend about the Lord, and he's a newer believer, and I just kind of said, hey, you know, we're going to be in the park tomorrow, and if you want to come, just, you know, we're going to have a barbecue, and we're going through the Gospel of John, and we're loving talking about Jesus, and you know, how many times do we invite people and they're like, no, you know, church, you know, church is, the wilderness is my church. And you're like, what, you know, and all of that stuff. You're like, heard it a million times, you know. Man, it seems like it's one in a million, you know, that, you, that someone will actually take you up on that offer. And we're just like holding this heifer down real hard. And, and he's like, that sounds amazing. You're like, wait, what? You know, and I, I don't even know if you, I don't see him, so. That's how effective that was. But, you know, man, when, when they say, oh, yeah, I think I will, then that's an encouraging thing, isn't it? It reminds me of, you know, Greg Laurie, the evangelist from Harvest Crusade down in California. Greg Laurie writes about his first evangelism experience. And he went down on Huntington Beach, and he's just down on the beach. And they've got like a Bible and a little track that they'll go through with people. And as they're walking along the beach, you know, they'll just kind of, Ask people if they want to know about Jesus. And his first experience was there was a little old lady sitting on a bench. And he just was like, okay, it's time to do it. Time to go frangelize, you know. Time to go talk to this lady. And so nervous and so scared. She's just going to rebuke me. She's old. She knows everything. You know, she, she's set in her way. She's not going to want to hear this. And he goes up and he's like, yes, ma'am. I was wondering if I could tell you uh, about the love of Jesus. And he's just waiting, cringing a little, waiting for her to just tell him how stupid he is. And she goes, yeah, that would be amazing. Here, sit down on the bench and tell me about Jesus. And he's like, what? You know? Oh, oh, gosh, now what do I do? I wasn't prepared for that, you know? Got to be prepared for step two, you guys. Because it's a wonderful thing when the people say, yeah, tell me about it. Oh, I'd like to tell you about the one who's told me everything I've ever done and has forgiven me of everything I've ever done and has set up a future and a hope for me. Well, this woman had that type of an experience. Come and see the one. Come see the man who's told me everything I've ever done. And so in verse 31, someone want to push the soundtrack for the clown music again? In the meantime, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. So you're like, great evangelism moment. And then, you know, uh, oh, now we're talking about food. Okay, so it's a little bit of like, uh, a little odd. However, as silly as it might sound, the, the boys went into town to get food. And uh, Charles Spurgeon was really gracious to the disciples here in his sermon when he talks about, you know what, man? Jesus was a man. Jesus had to eat. Jesus, it says earlier on in the chapter, was tired. And sometimes we need people in our life to say, hey, don't forget to eat, you know? And uh, Spurgeon says, I think the disciples did well to say, Master, eat. 
It just seems a little out of place. Then look at verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So no, no doubt Jesus was still thirsty, probably hungry. But he's dwelling in this conversation that he had with the woman at the well. And so he decides to use the circumstance as a teachable moment on priorities. And so the disciples say to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? <laughs> Again, they're still thinking about food. Jesus had just said, I have food to eat that you don't know. Well, I thought you sent us into the town to get food and you had a fanny pack on this whole time with a granola bar and a Slim Jim. Not cool, man. Not cool. You know, and, and so they say, has anyone brought him something to eat? And then Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus has a little bit of a pattern in his speaking, doesn't he? Talking to Nicodemus. If anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what am I supposed to do? Enter back up into my mother's womb. How can a guy do this? You know, no, no, no. I'm talking about the spiritual thing. And then Jesus says, give me something to drink. And he says, uh, if you drink of this well, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. And she says, Hey, this well is 100 feet deep, and it's old, and you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me this water? And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about water from this well. I'm talking about water from the heavenly well. And then the disciples say, hey, did someone give him a granola bar and a Slim Jim? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about physical food here. I'm talking about spiritual food. I'm talking about something even deeper. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Seems like the disciples are a little more concerned about sandwiches at the moment than salvation. And I get that way too. Anybody else here? Sometimes you're like, man, this outreach is going great and this church service is wonderful, service is wonderful, but I'm starting to smell Lonnie's cooking drifting over and let's wrap this thing up and get on over to the grill. That's going to happen in about 15 minutes. So remember to pay attention when it starts smelling good over there. Okay, guys. And so Jesus says to them this incredible Two statements there. Back in verse 32, I have food to eat which you do not know. And verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus is so absorbed with the matter at hand, he doesn't want to stop and eat. You guys know how that is when you get working really hard, you get working and you're on task. And I know this is a lot of guys that I've worked with. You know, we're getting the job done and it's noon. And we know, man, if we stop and we eat, we're going to lose our momentum, you know. And so sometimes we just work through lunch or or we do stop for lunch and then we want to take a nap and we don't get back to work, you know. And Jesus is like, man, we got some momentum here, guys. We're evangelizing the Samaritans, these this kind of half pagan, half Assyrian kind of cultish group that... The gospel came to say, don't you see you guys, there's something bigger going on right now than sandwiches. I appreciate the subway. Don't get me wrong, but man, we don't want to miss an opportunity here. And so he's absorbed with the matter, doesn't want to stop to eat, doesn't want to get distracted. And what this does to us is it demonstrates the urgency of the gospel. It's not something we get to do when we feel like it. It's not something that gets to take a backseat to breakfast. Man, when we have those opportunities in front of us, jump on them. 
to something that's even more satisfying, something that's more fulfilling, is to do the will of the Father. Even though Jesus was tired and he was thirsty and probably hungry, he's refreshed and he's invigorated by this opportunity to impart spiritual need, uh, spiritual help rather, to a soul in need. It's very reflective of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 that, you know, it's that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. D.A. Carson said no one's ever exemplified the truth of that Deuteronomy 8 3 passage in any way of the degree that Jesus has. He shows that he is living on something besides bread. It's the will of God, the word of God. Psalm chapter 40, it's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, speaking of Jesus before, and it's kind of a prophecy of Jesus being sent down from heaven, and he says, uh, Behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God, and your laws within my heart. And so Jesus, looking from heaven, is saying, you know what, the world as much as they would see the, the law and they would be like, yeah, the law is good. They would never do the law. They would always disobey and they could never save themselves. And so I've got to go as a rescuer and I have got to fulfill the law, delight to do the law. And then I'm going to be sacrificed as if I never kept the law. And so he, it's prophesied in Psalm 40. Hebrews 10 references it. It's a great, it's a great Christmas verse. Because it's right before the incarnation, before God took on flesh. He says, I delight to do the will of God. And so I'm going to go do it. And that is satisfying to Jesus. John Calvin said in his commentary on this passage, he says, By Jesus' example, he shows us that the kingdom of God should have priority over bodily comforts. Is that something that is representative of your life? Bodily comforts. And then the plan of the kingdom of God. We learn from Jesus here who led by example, the kingdom of God ought to take precedence. And so not only did Jesus say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, which we know that Jesus did. But he also says, it's also to finish his work. And you might underline that because it's, a, it's an important little phrase. My food is to finish his work. And what Jesus is doing there is he's setting up what was called by one writer an anticipatory link, okay? What he's doing there is he's saying, I've come to finish the work of God. And what that phrase is doing, it's causing us to anticipate to something Jesus is going to do that will finish the plan of God. What is that? It's the cross. He's going to go to the cross and offer up himself as a sacrifice for sins. He's going to be the savior of the world. And what did Jesus cry out when he took his final breath from the cross? What was it? It is finished. Believe it or not, it was there on the cross when Jesus was being satisfied, as painful as it was. He was eating that greatest banquet of fulfilling and finishing the will of God that he'd ever eaten when he is there on the cross Suffering for the sins of the world, shedding his blood to atone for those sins. So that's what my food is, Jesus says. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to eat that cracker a little bit later. 
But right now, I got something to talk to you guys about, okay? And so he says in verse 35, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. Right now, we're looking around and we're seeing hay laying on the ground and we say, Behold, there is six hours and there is the harvest, (laughs) you know? But uh, but right here, Jesus, he's actually using these Greek words. Uh, some translate it, yet four months and harvest comes. There's this rhythmic poem to it, yet four months and harvest comes. Okay? It was a poem of the day, a pop- popular proverb, and Jesus is going to speak to them that, hey, you're thinking that there's no real hurry, that the harvest will just be there whenever. But I'm telling you that there's a hurry for the task at hand. And you need to avoid waiting. Right now, I'm telling you, the harvest is plentiful. Look at the end of verse 35. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes right now. Now remember, they're at the well. The woman's water jar is right there. Jesus is talking to him. There's some, you know, freshly baked pita bread and some hummus there in a little cup, you know, waiting for Jesus to eat. It's all right there. There's this scene that's set. And yet at the same time, there's a group of individuals coming out from the city with the woman from the well. And Jesus is telling them, stop looking at the hummus. Stop looking at the falafel. Stop looking at the pita bread. Lift your eyes up. And what do you see coming out of the Samaritan village? And some even said in some preaching that I've heard, perhaps their headdresses kind of bobbing as they walk in the sun looked like grains of wheat and sheaves of wheat wiggling in the wind. Here they come, guys. Lift your eyes up. Right now I'm telling you, the harvest is plentiful and ready to be reaped. So don't put off evangelism, guys. Don't say tomorrow. Don't say next week. Today is the day of salvation. The Samaritans are right there. George Whitfield was a preacher from uh, the 1700s, around the times of George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. And George Whitfield was just known for his incredible evangelistic heart. And so he was a contemporary as Benjamin Franklin. Let me, I'm going to give three different references to uh, George Whitfield, okay? So they're, they're going to kind of be spread out a little bit. So here's the first one. Benjamin Franklin wrote an essay on the impact that evangelist George Whitfield had on the lives of colonial Americans back in the 1770s, Okay. Uh, don't you think that name George Whitfield is very fitting for him? White field. Jesus says the fields are white for the harvest. And here's this Billy Graham of his day, this gray glory of his day. His last name's Whitfield. I love that kind of stuff. Here's a little excerpt from Benjamin Franklin writing about George Whitfield. In 1739, arrived among us from England, the Reverend Mr. Whitfield who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher. He was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches, but the clergy took a dislike to him 
and soon refused him their pulpits, so he was obliged to preach in the fields. All right, so George Whitfield, again, here's another way his name is just perfect for him. Pastors kicked him out of their churches because he was preaching the gospel. So he has to go out into the fields, Whitfield, in the field, right? And he begins evangelizing, open-air preaching in the fields of colonial America. Ben Franklin writes, The multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous. And it was a matter of speculation to me uh, who was one of the number. To observe the extraordinary influence of the oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him, notwithstanding his common abuse of them by asserting that, assuring them that they were naturally half beasts and half devils. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners and behaviors of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. And so you have this account from Benjamin Franklin, who, by the way, uh, Al Mohler writes in his podcast, uh, or speaks in his podcast, Thinking in Public, uh, that he believes that uh, Benjamin Franklin, at the end of his life, became a born-again believer because of the ministry of George Whitfield. Just an incredible thing. And so you have a man named George Whitfield, evangelistic in heart, kicked out of buildings, says, fine, we'll go outside and we'll preach in the fields. And I'm going to speak the truth into men's lives. And men are going to, you know, they're going to appreciate that winsome moment, just like the woman at the well did. And they're going to begin worshiping and, and, uh, so where you can't even walk through the town without hearing worship music being played in all the houses throughout there because such a revival is taking place, okay? Now, George Whitfield, when he was preaching, a man named Alexander Huxley, uh, many of you might recognize that name, he was a skeptic of the day, a critic of Christianity. He was on his way to hear George Whitfield preach. When one of the men on his way said to Huxley, I would have never thought that you, such a critic and ardent skeptic, would believe in God and go listen to this preacher out here in the fields. To which Huxley responded, I don't believe in God, but that guy does. <laughs> and so this incredible ministry of George Whitfield, a man who looked up and saw that the fields were indeed right for the harvest. I love that phrase that Jesus says. In fact, over in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all sorts of different cities and villages teaching in synagogues, and he would preach the gospel of the kingdom. He would heal every kind of sickness and disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw all the multitudes of people it says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and they were scattered and they were like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the workers are few or the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his uh, vineyard or into his harvest. 
So Jesus looks up and he sees the Samaritans coming and probably in a similar fashion, his heart began to be burdened as he says, look up. Don't you see the harvest? The harvest is plentiful. And there's not many people to do that work of laboring in the harvest. And so what do we do about that? Well, you know, we got to have these big conferences and they are helpful and that's great. But one of the big things that Jesus says to do when the harvest is plentiful is he says, start praying. Start praying, you guys, that God would touch the hearts of men and women and send them out into this worker's field of evangelism and telling the good news of Christ. Just go for it. Go preach the gospel. Go out with sickle in hand. Go evangelize. You know the word evangelize comes from the Greek word evangelion or euangelion, and it means the good news from the battlefield. Whenever there's a battle, there's that one runner, you know, who's supposed to go back to the back lines and tell the, the people in the back lines, you know, uh, guys, we won the battle. We, it was an incredible victory. And, and that's exactly what we do as Christians. We go from village to village and city to city and country to country. And we tell people that Jesus has won the day. Jesus has won the victory. I like what Charles Spurgeon says when he says, when you do that, expect a present blessing. Believe that you will have that, that harvest. Go to work and get it, and do not be satisfied unless you have it. I think, I think that's what the Lord's doing in Polina right now. As I was studying this, I was thinking about Polina. Just celebrated at the end of July our one-year anniversary of a church plant in Polina. But for me, it's been about three and a half, four years of regularly going out to the ranches and farms in Polina and working with a lot of the cowboys and the, and the people out in that community and out in, that, out in the country with prayerful hearts, just praying the whole way out there that I would get a chance to evangelize, I would get a chance to build relationship with these people, I would get a chance to point them to Jesus. And you know, when I drive to Polina, I just see a harvest field. It's pretty much when I hit the post store that I begin, my heart just begins welling up within me. And I begin to pray. I pray for Jim Woods, the first bridge past Polina, that he would come to know Jesus. I pray for Destry and Amber, that they would come to know Jesus. And, and just by going regularly, just believing we're going to see a harvest, I go and I pray for these people. I go and I, I pass Joe's house. I pray the Lord to touch Joe's heart. Of course, he's done that, right? Joe and Courtney, praise God. But just past Joe and Courtney's, there's, there's Brooke and Andy. I pray for Brooke and Andy Gray that God would save them. I know up the hill and up the road is Val and Bev, and, uh, Val, Val and Bev who come to the Polina Church. I pray for them. Just down past that road is Geronimo, and I pray for him and his family. I pray for Brent, the owner of that ranch. And just past that's the Weibel Ranch. I pray for Jim and Jody Lowry, and I just pray that God would touch them and all the workers at the Weibel Ranch. And, There'd be a revival in them. And you go a little farther and there's Calvin and Melissa Hartzell and praying for them and just reaching out to them, just telling them, I love you, Calvin, I consider you a friend and I just pray for you every time I drive by. Melissa making it to church, their daughter coming to church, praying for them every time we, we go there. Just past them, it's, it's Calvin's mom and dad. I, I've been praying for them and I finally got to meet them last week and I got invited to their harvest party. And I didn't go, I couldn't do it. Too much on my plate, but prayed for them. Told them every time I drive by, I'm going to do what Joe does. I'm going to honk. You got to know when I'm honking, I'm praying for you. Just, man, I'm telling you, there's just, I just see 
wheat fields as I'm driving. God, save them. Lord, this time when I'm out there, put someone riding next to me that I, I can just have that opportunity to share the gospel. That's when Spurgeon talks about, believe that you would have it. Go for it. Believe that God will heal them, that God will save them, that God will forgive them, that God will be a restorer of their hearts, that they'll drink of the well of Jesus and never thirsting. And you guys, put yourself in that position. You might not be called to Polina, but wherever you're at, you got a people on your heart. Get in there. Don't you see that it's a wheat field that's ripe for the harvest? Go for it. Volunteer. Sign up. Take the extra time. Spend the extra money. Develop those disciplines so you can get in. Get that foot in the door and tell them about Jesus. They are going to hell. They are perishing. And how are they going to believe upon Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? And how are they ever going to hear about Jesus unless you go and open up your mouth and tell them about Jesus? They will perish in their sins. Hear the call of Christ today to quit worrying about worrying about sandwiches and start caring about salvation. Stop, stop looking at people and all their just funky, odd behaviors and characteristics and looks and smells and all of that. And do what Paul the Apostle says, regard them as souls with eternities. It'll make you love them. It'll make you want to bend over backwards to tell them about Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 37, this saying is true. One sows and another reaps. And that's true. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Someone's been out in Polina before me and they've cast some seed out. And I might be casting seed over here. I might be watering that seed over here. But it's God that gives the increase. In fact, we never should forget that Jesus is actually the true sower and the true reaper. Jesus is the one that was the guy in Samaria sowing right there at the well. He's sowing. And he's also the one that is going to reap that harvest. Verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. This afternoon, we head to Polina for the four o'clock service, but that wasn't our idea. Good men and women who love the Lord have been serving out there for decades. And now's just our chance to be a part of that great testimony. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Today's a day of harvest. Look at that. All these people coming out because of the woman at the well, because of her frangelism. And many Samaritans, you guys remember the Samaritans. They were, they were, I know that the word's not popular today, but they were half-breeds in the sense that they were Israelites who the Assyrians came in, and part of the Assyrian captivity of the Israelites was that they took some Israelites out, and they put some Assyrians in, and those Assyrians began to mingle and mix with them so that the Israelites no longer would worship God in any sort of true way. They would worship God according to the false gods of the Assyrians. So they had a little bit of, uh, of the God of Israel, but a whole lot of gods of the pagan gods. And so that there was that mixture going on. And Jesus loves those mixed people and says to them, I'll give you living water too. Many of the Samaritans, verse 39, in that city believed in him. Why'd they believe in him? Next week, we're going to see the, the uh, Galileans. 
They're going to believe in Jesus because of signs and wonders. It's going to take signs and wonders to get them to trust in Jesus. But the Samaritans, remember what? Remember who they are. Remember their background. They believed in him because of the word. They believed in him for a couple reasons. And the first one was because of the word of the woman. The word of the woman who testified, he told me everything I ever did. And so verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. This happens a lot in the gospels and in the book of Acts. Like, man, you have got a powerful message. It is bringing life to my family and me. Will you stick around and just teach us for a couple days? I don't, that still happens today. When you go to Nepal, it's often asked, like, could you guys stick around for a couple days and just speak to us some of the life that you've got? My friend Mo is the um, Spanish pastor. Uh, he was at Calvary Chapel Corvallis. He started an actual uh, Spanish-speaking church over there. And he would come over to Redmond to his daughter's friends, who were all Catholics. And she, she set up a meeting for him to come share the gospel with a house full of Catholics. And... He came and he just told them about Jesus and their hearts began to burn within them hearing these things about Jesus. So they asked him to stay something like five days with them. And so he stayed for five days and he shared the gospel with them. And many of these Catholics moved from any sort of self and works-based righteousness to trusting in the grace of Jesus for, for salvation. And they would regularly ask him, hey, could you come back for just another weekend and just speak these words of life into us, and he would do it. And so it's a great example here that these people were receptive to the message of Jesus. And verse 41 talks about that. And many more believed because of his own word. So the first group, they believed because of the word that the woman said. And this group, many more believed because of the word of God. In Luke 4, 32, we see his word was with authority. John 6, 63 tells us that the words that Jesus speak are from the spirit and they are life. And the Samaritans found that. I find that the words that you speak are words of life. In verse 42, then they said to the woman, now we believe. Now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. I wonder, have you ever, have you crossed that brink? Have you crossed that line in your faith, in your Christianity? Maybe you're here today because of something someone else said about Jesus. Ah, that sounds nice. That sounds really nice. I want to hear more about that. Maybe you're here because someone shared their testimony with you. You've heard their testimony. You've heard how God has changed their life. Ah, that sounds nice. I wonder if that's available for me too. And I'm telling you today, it's available for you today. You can have your own testimony. You don't need to say, ah, that sounds nice. I'm just going to kind of try to ride your coattails for a little while. No, today you can have your own testimony. You can hear from Jesus for yourself. And you can have this same saying be said of you in verse 42. Now I believe. Now I believe. Not because of your testimony. That was great. Now I believe. I've made it my own. I've received it for myself. 
Because I have heard the message of Jesus. And I've had him touch my life. In just a little bit, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus. To let him into your life. And to let him touch your life. But who knows if this message from the Samaritans is something that actually set up Acts chapter 8. When there's a full on revival in Samaria led by Philip the Evangelist. This is kind of like what Jesus talks about. Some are going to sow and you're going to reap for what others started. Philip the Evangelist will go back to Samaria and he's going to work in this evangelistic field and he's going to reap what Jesus started. Probably even minister to the same people that Jesus had witnessed to here on this day. But they said, we have found him to be the true savior. Indeed, he's the rescuer. He's the deliverer. We found this to be true. John Newton, at the end of his life, summed up his message. This is the one who wrote the amazing grace hymn. The one who used to be a slave trader and was born again and saved and then helped stop slavery in England. This was the end of his life. He wrote of himself, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Jesus is a great savior. The Samaritans had figured that out. We, are, we believe this guy, this Jesus, is the Messiah, the savior, the rescuer, the deliverer, the hero that we've been waiting for. And he's the savior of the world. He's not just the savior of the Jews who have that religious outward appearance. He's the savior of the Samaritans too. And all our weird you know, religion stuff that we've been dabbling in. And you know what? He's going to be the savior of the European area. And he's going to be the savior of that new world over there. You know, he's going to be savior all the way across those Cascade Mountains to this little place called Prineville, Oregon. He's going to be the savior of there as well. I want to ask you, is he your savior today? Is he your savior? Have you received forgiveness of sins from him? you let him wash away your iniquities, all the bad things you've ever done? The woman at the well said, come and see a man who's told me all the bad things I've ever done. Heck, I could probably take a guess and guess all the bad things you've ever done just by looking at you. Ah, you've had a hard and weathered life. But what about someone being able to tell you, come and meet the one who will forgive everything you've ever done. He'll wash away everything you've ever done, just like you've never even done it. You can have a fresh start, a new life, and strength for today so that you can now live for him. Come and meet that one. Can I tell you one last little story about George Whitfield? I know, you're totally bored, you guys. Come on. You got that look. Sunshine's warm. It's freezing in the shade. I'm just going to tell you, my hands are cold. You might notice, I've never preached with my hands in my back pocket before. Okay, so let me set up this story. A couple years ago, a friend of ours who's really into genealogy research just decided to do some research on my family. She find out, found out that on my mom's side, my mom's mom's side, we have a relative from the Revolutionary War era whose name is Titus Lane. Okay, Titus Lane was the founder of the first church ever in Tennessee, okay? It's called Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church. I get so crazy about this kind of history. I got online and found out that that is still a church today, 
And it's a healthy church. They're a very mission-minded church. And they are just shining in the midst of COVID-19. It's incredible, okay? So I have this grandfather through the line that goes back to the Revolutionary War. First pastor of the first church in Tennessee. Still a church today. And he was leader of a lot of the pioneer men in Tennessee to go and fight a battle against the British. A battle that was fought in South Carolina at the Battle of Kings Mountain. He led what was called the Over Mountain Men's very famous battle, a very famous expedition, where they conquered the British at the Battle of Kings Mountain. And it's said that that battle ended up turning the tide of the war and would lead Cornwallis to surrendering uh, during the Revolutionary War. Okay, So that's pretty exciting. I'm loving this story as I'm hearing about it. I'm doing a little bit of research on my own. But something that I heard in this is, uh, well, let me go ahead and read it to you. Tidence Lane's story has a preface within the ministry of George Whitfield. By the way, I wrote this for a newspaper article, so I'm reading you my own writing, okay? Tidence Lane's story has a preference with the ministry of George Whitfield, the English evangelist whose, quote, bristling, crackling, and thundering open-air preaching led to the great awakening of the mid-1700s. One man who was converted and called by Whitfield's Connecticut ministry was a guy named Shubal Stearns. Stearns, much like his predecessor Whitfield, was an ardent evangelist whose physical demeanor and speech, quote, was musical and strong, end quote. They were both used in a, in a, used mightily by the Holy Spirit to bring about what has been known as the Great Awakening of the Southern Colony. During this awakening, Stern started a church in Sandy Creek, Virginia. Within its first 16 years, this church was used by God to plant 42 other churches and send out 125 preachers. This church's story is recognized as one of the most profound religious movements in American history. Thousands of churches today can trace their roots back to the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. During Shubal Stern's revival, Tidence Lane, who had hateful feelings for Baptists, was curious to go hear Shubal Stern's preach. So he rode 40 miles on horseback, and when entering the area of Shubal's ministry, saw a man with a book seated beneath a peach tree speaking with a crowd of people. Lane writes, quote, he fixed his eyes upon me immediately, which made me feel in such a manner as I'd never felt before. I turned to quit the place, but could not proceed far. I walked about, sometimes catching his eyes as I walked. My uneasiness increased and became intolerable. I went up to him, thinking that a salutation and shaking hands would relieve me, but it happened otherwise. I began to think that he had an evil eye and was to be shunned, but shun I could no more effect than a bird can shun the rattlesnake when it fixes its eyes upon it. When he began to preach, my perturbations increased so that nature can no longer support them, and I just sunk to the ground. It was there that Lane was born again, and with his family, he was never to be the same. His brother Dutton 
was also saved through Schubel Stern's ministry and became an ardent preacher leading revivals among friends and family. Both Titus and Dutton's father had a hatred for the Baptists that was as furious as his son's. And when he heard that his wife heard Dutton speak, he became so enraged that he struck her, grabbed his rifle to kill Dutton. Mrs. Lane begged her husband to hear Dutton preach before making the harsh call to kill him. Richard agreed and would come under such conviction of the spirit that he would be saved and baptized by Dutton soon after. I know that's a lot to take in. You know, what are all these strange names and whatnot? Here's an incredible thing, you guys. George Whitfield preached to Shubel Stearns, who preached to Titus Lane, who no doubt prayed for their children and their children's children, just like we sing at our church. May his favor be upon you in a thousand generations. And guess who's preaching to you here today? I'm a disciple of such men. I'm a disciple of a family line that stretches back to there. And you know, God wants to do the same things through you as well. He wants to make preachers and evangelists out of us that raise up the next generation, who then teach the next generation, who see fields that are ripe for the harvest, so that people that even would hate the thought of becoming a Christian would hear the message of the gospel and melt under its warm rays. Surrendering to the Lord Jesus. Being saved. So that's all I've got for today, you guys. A message of evangelism. A message of speaking and preaching the good news. And how I'd like to close, since it's our last, it's our last park service for the season. Lord willing, we'll see what, what happens. But we do have the baptismal filled up. And we're just going to have everyone kind of just surround the baptismal. And we're just going to make available a place for anyone that wants to follow Jesus. To come like the Samaritans did. To just come and make a stand. And say, you know what? I'm a great sinner. That much is true. But I'm hearing today that Jesus is a great savior. I want him to save me. I want him to be my Lord. And if that's you today, then the Bible says that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone would hear my voice and open the door to me, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. Today, do you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart? Do you find yourself in a place like Titan Slain did, like, The preacher's looking at you, and for some reason you think my eyes keep connecting. Some of you are wearing sunglasses. Very clever. But maybe you just feel like, man, I just feel like God is speaking to me. He just keeps speaking to me, and he's calling me to follow Jesus. Today, I just want to say, come be a follower of Jesus. And in the Bible, one of the first things you do when you're a follower of Jesus is you make a public confession of it through baptism. What baptism is, is it's just, it's basically a picture of you dying with Jesus, being crucified with Jesus. And after Jesus was crucified, he was buried. But the good news is Jesus didn't stay dead and buried in the grave. He rose from the dead and will live forevermore. And you would be telling everyone in this park, you know what? 
The old, you can insert your name, but I'm going to use mine. The old Rory that came into this park, he's dead. He's dead. He's gone. I'm a new creation. I'm born again. I unite myself with Jesus in his death, in his burial. And I hear about a resurrection. I'm going to be living a new life, everyone. The life that I now live, I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God. The Bible says that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can now live in you. As you rise up out of the water, that's a promise you can receive today. So, if you feel the Lord saying today is the day, you've never been baptized, you've never made a public confession that you're a follower of Jesus, to quote Acts chapter 8, here is water, what hinders you from being baptized? telling you, if you're waiting for that day that grandma's going to be in town and grandpa's going to be here, you're probably never going to get baptized. Most people I know that wait and wait and wait, you know, oh, you're waiting for the day that you got your swimsuit on and someone's going to baptize you. Usually when there's an opportunity, you don't have your swim shorts on. Just telling you, okay? Today is the day. Today is the day to make a public, and I believe that the moment you make that profession, something happens in your life where the Lord begins to use you in powerful ways because you've been obedient here in one of the most elementary principles he calls you to be obedient in and he's going to begin using you in greater and greater ways and in greater things so will you guys just gather with me we'll just go over by the horse trough there and we'll just hang out for a little bit johnny's going to lead us in some worship and uh we're just making ourselves available if anybody desires to be baptized today uh, and if anyone desires to be a follower of jesus seize this opportunity become a follower of jesus today you want, go ahead and set your things aside. We'll just gather over there. We'll sing a last song, and uh, the waters are available.